0: With us, then I encourage you to go ahead and turn your Bibles to the book of Job. So last week. We started a new series um, in the book of Job. Trusting God in the darkness is what the series is called. And so now, this week, we're going to be in Job chapters 1 and 2. And in these chapters, we're going to see exactly what happens to Job. And look at the trials. We're going to look at the sufferings that he goes through. And and as we begin, I just want to remind us that that Job is going to challenge our understanding of God. Job, Job makes us uncomfortable. And so, like just be reminded of that right now. We often want to have these nice neat, clean little boxes on how we think of God and how we think that he acts and how he rules the world. Well, Job very well might put some serious holes in the boxes that you have or just obliterate them altogether. So what we need to do is every time we open God's Word, either in our private devotions or in a time like this, uh, we need to commit to making sure that that our view of God is in accordance to Scripture and not in accordance to anything else. And so that's just what I want to encourage us. As we look at this, where there might be challenges to what we think or believe about God, let it be that Scripture is what, what informs us on who our God is. And so last week we saw Job is a genuine believer. Job loves God. Most godly person in all the earth. And so that's from the words of God himself. And so today we're going to see a massive storm comes and it settles over Job. And it's not going to move, and his entire life is going to be disrupted. Everything he has is going to be taken from him. And so the main point that we're going to see today is suffering is a peculiar means that reveals the genuineness of our faith and the supremacy of God's glory. And so I use the word peculiar because it can mean strange and and suffering can feel strange. It feels sometimes like there's no purpose behind it, like it's chaos, just, just running rampant through our life or through this world. And yet, what we see all throughout scripture is that suffering is a tool, is an instrument in which our God regularly uses as a means of refining our, uh, finding our faith, proving our faith, and revealing his glory all over the place. And so so that's what we're going to be seeing today, and so we're not going to read all of Job 1 and 2 uh, simply because that is a lot to read and then try to preach through it all. We're going to read uh, chapter 1, verse 6 to the end of the chapter, and we'll talk about um, both chapters, but I encourage you later today, go back and just read through both chapter 1 and chapter 2. And real quick, this is, this is how these chapters move. There's four scenes. There's a heavenly scene, where God and Satan speak. There's an earthly scene where Job suffers and he responds, and then there's a heavenly scene and an earthly scene. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read about the first heavenly scene, the first earthly scene, and then we'll talk about all of them um, as we walk through the sermon. So I want to encourage you, go ahead and stand as, as we will read. Now, it's going to be a little longer, uh, so hopefully you stretched. But we stand each week simply as a means of reminding ourselves that this is God's word coming with his full authority, full inspiration. And let us remember, this is for our good. So Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell among them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Thou Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, then came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine. And their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worship. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed. Be the name of the Lord, and all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Let's pray, Father. Father, we just thank you for your word, and God, we thank you for the Book of Job. And Lord, we learn so much here about who you are, about how you run this world, about evil and suffering and Satan. It's so. Many things. And yet, God, we have so many questions that we still want answered. And so, Lord, I pray, give us humility as we come into your text. I pray that you would mold our minds and our hearts so that they'd be transformed by your word and we'd be in alignment with what you say and that we would understand who you are in accordance to your word. And God, I pray... That our faith would be like the roots of a tree and they would go deep, deep, deep into your character. That we would know who you are and that we would truly grasp your goodness and your greatness and your glory. And because of who you are, that we'd be unshakable no matter what storm comes our way. And so God bless Bless the preaching of your word today. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through these four scenes. Heavenly scene, earthly scene, heavenly scene, earthly scene. And then we're going to pour out some application at the end. I think I have four points. So at least this is an eight-point sermon. But it could be more. So we'll see how far we get. Uh, Scene one. It's a heavenly scene it's what we begin with, in verse six we read that on a certain day God summons all the sons of God and they appear before him, and the sons of God likely refers to the angels so think of this like a, a presidential cabinet meeting, and he brings upon all these people who help who, who he uses as a means of of ruling and running this world, and then we see. That, that Satan is there and God turns to him and says, from where have you come? Now, real quick, the word Satan, uh, you know, that's not really the devil's name. Just so we're clear on that, it's a title. And, and what it means, it means the adversary, it means the enemy, and, and so it means the opponent. And so as you're reading this, you actually says, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and the enemy was also there among them. So that, that's how it reads. And so it, it ought to make us really quick go, huh, why is he there? What is happening here? How is the enemy of God in the presence of God, in the throne room of God, in his heavenly court? And we're not told. But apparently Satan must also appear before God and give reports. And so notice how, how Satan gives a response to God's question on, on where, have you, where have you come from? And he, he basically says, well, I've been walking around doing my thing, just going up and down throughout the world. And so what happens next is, is, is astonishing in, in one sense as we read Job, and yet as we look at Scripture, maybe we shouldn't be so astonished, but, but in Job we are, and God, God is the one who brings Job to the attention of Satan. Now remember, in Job chapter 1 in the first five verses, we read Job is a blameless man, upright, fears God, turns away from evil. God then says the exact same thing, but adds, there is none like him on all the earth. So we have a very, very, very godly man. He's not a scoundrel. God's not like, oh man, we're about to pay Job back. This is a godly man. And so now he brings him to the attention of Satan, and and he's not just introducing him, but rather he's actually asking, "Have you considered shooting your fiery darts at him?" And notice Job's response. He almost mocks God. Does Job fear God for no reason? Is he really that great? Does Job fear God for no reason? I mean, you can you just hear the sarcasm in his voice. God presents him. Have you considered Job as God? Does he? Does he fear you for no reason? Please. Job's a puppet. You pull his strings, you give him good things. You place the hedge of protection around him. You remove your blessings and he will curse you. Satan, in essence, is saying, Job's faith is not genuine. And God, you're not worthy of all worship. You have to pay people with good things so they're loyal to you. That's the only reason Job stays around. And so what does God do? God says all that he has is in your hand. One restriction, don't touch Job. End of scene. Back to earthly scene now. And scene begins just like the first one, there was a day. On this day, Job experiences four great horrific tragedies. Two of them are by nature and two of them are by enemy people groups. Four messengers come and deliver the news. Messenger one, verse 14, Job's oxen and donkeys have been taken. All the servants have been killed but one. Messenger number two, verse 16, fire comes from heaven. So a lightning strike, something like that. All all of Job's sheep and, and all of his servants are killed but one. Messenger number three, verse 17, Job's camels have been stolen and all of his servants have been killed except one. Messenger number four in verses 18 and 19, Job's children are feasting just like we read that they do in verses four and five of chapter one on a regular basis, but this time a great wind comes and knocks over the house and everyone is dead except one servant. This is what happens when God removes his hedge of protection. This is what happens. Job has gone from from great wealth Losing everything in a single day. He's gone from having a large family, many possessions, many servants, to, to having four servants and a wife. He lost everything. And he's had zero time to process. Notice how it reads. It says, the messenger came, verse 14. And then it says, verse 16, while he was still speaking, another came. Verse 17, while he was still speaking, another came. Verse 18, while he was still speaking, another came. Like, there's no time to process. It's a wave after wave after wave after wave after wave of suffering, of trial, of horrific news that washes over Job. Think of a man who who wakes up and he finds out his newborn child has died in her sleep and walks outside and sees his car has been stolen. He receives a phone call and his four kids coming back from a camping trip were all killed by a drunk driver. One wave right after another, back after back after back. What would you do? How would you respond at this moment would you be numb? Would you be in shock? what, is Job, what does the most godly man in all the earth, what does he do at this moment? Does he curse God like Satan said he would? Verses 20 and 21. He tears his robe, he shaves his head, he falls on his face, he worships God. I mean it's amazing. He worships God. Naked I came. Naked I will return. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job worship, scene over, back now to scene three. Heavenly scene. It just moves like, this is how the text moves. Chapter two begins with, again, there was a day. Don't you want to say no more days? Like, 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 no more days, like we're good. Can we put a pause? But there's another day. Sons of God appear, giving reports, Satan is there again, similar conversation to chapter one, almost verbatim, but then in verse three, there's there's some new information that's given. God once again brings up Job to Satan, and at the end of verse three, God says, Job still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. In essence, God says, you're wrong, Satan. His faith is genuine. He... He did worship me. He didn't curse me at the removal of his stuff. So what does Satan do? Is Satan impressed now? Does Satan go, oh, you're right. I was wrong. I repent. Is that what he says? Oh, he's, he's sarcastic and mocks God again. Well, you still have a hedge of protection around him. You let me touch his life. You let me touch his health. He will curse you. And so what does God say again? Verse six, behold, he's in your hand. Restriction, though, spare his life. Earthly scene, four. We just move right now to the next scene. Now this, there, it doesn't begin like the other ones. There's no day, praise God. Maybe it's because this one happens over a longer period of time. But in verse seven, we see that Satan has now called caused boils and sores to appear all over Job's body. Now, if you look at the rest of the book of Job, we see that he's in immense pain. In chapter 2, verse 12, we'll see when the comforters come, he, he's disfigured. They don't recognize him. His best friends have no idea that this is Job as they're walking upon him. I think it's in chapter 7, we read there's worms and there are maggots crawling through his body as the boils on him are continually opening him up and bursting forth with pus. So he is in immense pain. It should be disgusting. You should be like, Ugh. It's how we're supposed to react to this. We're supposed to be, to be horrified. We have a man who was revered by all and now he's avoided by all. Verse nine, his wife foolishly says, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. I mean, I think in one sense we can go, she, she lost everything too with him, Right? So we shouldn't be too hard on her. And yet, she's doing exactly what Satan was hoping Job would do. Verse 10, Job turns to her. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Similar to exactly what he says in Job 1, he worships God. Job, there's so, so many questions we can have here as we look at these two chapters, so many questions. Why did a good God give permission to Satan to do this? Why does job worship? How does Job worship? Often we see that when people experience a break in their happiness, they experience a break in their faith. Have you noticed that? A break in their happiness, a break in the way their life is working. When that comes apart, their faith unravels at the same point. We see that, so many points, so many times. So what I want to do now is pull out some application from the text, some truths that we see. In Psalm 1, we read, blessed is a man who meditates on the truths of God's word. And we see that when he does that, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in all of its season. And so what we want to do now is we want to meditate on truths that we see here so that our faith, would have deep roots. That's what we want to do. Our faith would have deep roots in the, in the word of God. Because what we have said, you're either in a trial, going into a trial, or coming out of a trial, right? Life is full of trials. We don't really have a say-so, Orem. Does Job have any say-so? None. And that's so often how just trials come. But we have the truth of God's word that our, our roots, the roots of our faith would go deep, to the character of who God is, no matter to the size of the storm, our faith would be unshakable because of who God is. So that's, that's what we're going to do. And we'll see if we get through them all and what this looks like. Number one, the spiritual realm is real, and it profoundly affects the physical realm. Like You can't miss this. Spiritual realm is real, and it profoundly affects the physical realm. Okay, so just atheism is wrong. End of point. Atheism, so atheism says, I'll believe in, in observable realities only. That's all that's real. And, and the, side note, um, so you can't be a consistent atheist. Like, you just can't be a consistent atheist. Atheists. I don't care who they are; they're not consistent. In fact, I was with Steve and Kelly, uh, and we were in Minneapolis at a at a conference, and we go to an axe-throwing place, which is just you know fun thing for guys to do. We go throw axes, and we had um, a lot of fun doing that. And so the guy who's, you know, making sure we don't die, uh, he he he's an atheist, and he says, "Look, I I have studied all the religions. I went I went to school so I would know." all the religions. So I was like, great. What'd you decide on? I'm against them all. Okay. So he's like, yep, I've decided religion is just simply a crutch. I don't believe in anything. I'm an atheist. Okay. And so we, we talk a little more. Every year though, he goes to the PSG in Michigan. Now I'm sure you all know what the PSG is, right? I had no idea what he was talking about. It's the pagan spiritual gathering. do you get the irony? I'm an atheist. I don't believe in anything that's not observable. But every year I will go to a gathering where they do things and and worship and talk about pagan spirits. You can't be a consistent atheist. But here what we see in the book of Job is there is a spiritual reality. We see it all throughout scripture, there's a there's a spiritual reality. There's a God who exists in all of his glory. There are good heavenly angels that are carrying out his will. In Revelation, we see they're literally surrounding him. In Isaiah 6, we see they're surrounding him and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy to the Lord God Almighty. And they're doing that every day and every night, all the time, right now. They're just praising God. And there are other Angels, figures, like Satan, this enemy, who also exists. And here's what we need to know. Satan is real. He appeared in the garden when he tempted Adam and Eve. We're told in John 13, 27, after Jesus washes the disciples' feet, that he enters into Judas, where then Judas goes and betrays Jesus. He's arrested and will then be crucified. In Ephesians chapter 2, we're told that all of humanity is born sinful, and we live apart from God's grace, and we follow Satan. In the book of John, when Jesus talks to the Pharisees, he says, you don't believe in God's word because you are sons of the devil. In Ephesians 6, we're told that the enemy, that Satan shoots fiery darts at believers. And 1 Peter 5, Satan is said to be like a roaring lion looking for saints to devour. There is an enemy. His title is the enemy, the opponent, the adversary, Satan, the devil. His two of his greatest weapons are pain and pleasure. I think John Piper said that as he was preaching through this text. Two of his greatest weapons Weapons are pain and pleasure. Think about this. In the Garden of Eden, what did he tempt Eve with? Pleasure. You could be God. You don't need to bow before God. You could be God. Offers her delight and pleasure. Here, we see if Job experiences pain and suffering, take away pleasure. Experience pain and suffering, you'll begin to question God's strength. His presence, his faithfulness, and his goodness, and he'll curse you to your face. Pain and pleasure are two of the most powerful weapons that Satan will use to distract you from God, to pull away your faith from God, to lure you away from him. He wants to destroy and yet we do not need to fear him. Never once are we told that we need to fear Satan. The Bible does not teach a dualism, that there is two equal powers, good and evil, or that the Satan and God are equal. And they're just at battling with one another, and we're just kind of like, who's going to win? We're not sure. Rather, what we see is that Satan is a created being. He does cause real problems and suffering and in Revelation 20 he will be thrown into the lake of fire where he'll be eternally destroyed. We don't fear Satan because he's not all powerful. He's not God. In fact, that leads us to the next point. God is absolutely sovereign over all powers and we could have just done an entire sermon on this point right here. The goal today is we're not trying to solve the problem of evil. I don't think that's really necessarily what the Bible tries to do but we can make sure we have a strong foundation so we know how to think about evil and suffering and trials and how that relates to God. Some people try to explain the presence of evil, and you've heard these, these are kind of two basic ones, um, that, that God's not all powerful and he's just doing the best he can. He's just trying to, to do right, but, but he can't stay on top of it all And so when there's bad things happening, he's just running behind Satan and trying to put a spin on it. And perhaps some have also said, well, God wants really good things for you, but he's limited by, you know, your free will. Which we won't even get into that one at this moment. That is, don't ever use that, it's stupid. To think that you, in your abilities, limit God. Or that somehow Satan strong arms him and manipulates him. Or the other idea is, well, maybe God is all-powerful. He's just not good. And we're just pawns in his world, and he just does whatever he wants, and he doesn't even care about us. There's other ideas out there. Those are probably two prominent ones. Um, But neither of those are sufficient, and both of those fail when looking at the book of Job. Just fail utterly in the book of Job, and really in every book of Scripture, from cover to cover of the Bible, God is revealed as absolutely sovereign over every aspect of creation. In fact, later in the book of Job, in Job 38, we're gonna read that God is the one who commands the sun to rise every day. Now, I know we question that in Washington. We're like, did he? Maybe? There's no sun behind me. There's clouds up there again. Um, but he, he is the reason the sun, or the earth spins, you know, you can say it however you want. But he's the reason we have morning and night every day. He's the reason that clouds move across the sky. He's the reason that it rains or that it doesn't rain. He is the one who controls every single aspect of every part of creation at all moments, his sovereignty knows no limits because God is infinite and therefore his sovereignty is infinite in every way. There is nothing, not even the, a hummingbird or a bee in anywhere that moves without God's not only knowledge, but ordaining it. Everything in creation is ruled over by God. And we have to see this because evil and suffering are not merely Chaos. Satan's not just running around doing whatever it is, that is that he wants, and Satan's, and Jesus is running after him saying, Let me fix this, let me fix this, let me spin this so that I can be true in Romans 8.28 and everything works for your good. No. God ordains everything for your good from the beginning, not running and trying to spin things. And we can see this in at least six ways in Job 1 and 2. So we're gonna just walk through these. Kind of quickly, chapter 1, verse 6, chapter 2, verse 1, the sons of God present themselves before who? God. There is an authority in heaven, and they all come to him. And they all give their reports to him. There's no dualism. Chapter 1, verse 10, God's hedge of protection has prevented any evil from coming upon Job. That, that's, Satan's, that's why Satan hasn't been able to do anything. God's like, have you considered him? Well, I would have, but there's this force field around Job, and his darts don't go through it. There's nothing he can do. Basically, Satan's saying, Man, if you lower your force field, God, I could do something really powerful then. Chapter 1, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 6 Only by God's permission is Satan allowed to torment Job, and he's given restrictions. He's a dog on a leash. So he's not running rampant, doing whatever he wants. God says, you can go this far. And Satan can't take one step further than what God has allowed him to do. So just think about that. Whatever trial you're going through, suffering you're experiencing, or what you know of someone, Satan doesn't have free reign in their life. He's only able to go to the very extent which God ordains chapter 121 chapter 2 verse 10 Job acknowledges that God is in ultimate control notice what he says the Lord has given the Lord has done what this is that interactive time we need a we need a slide that says that audio just interactive time the Lord has given the Lord does what so who took Do you you believe that? Do you? Shall we receive good from God and not evil? And you might say, is that really true? Hold on. You're saying that in some way God is the ultimate one who ordains all things, stands behind everything, good and evil? Isaiah 45, verses 5 and 7. This is what we read. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Who's in control of everything? God, good and evil. The ultimate one who stands behind all of it. Chapter two, verse three. God himself acknowledges his role in Job's suffering. If you look at chapter two, verse three, this is what we read. Remember, this is God once again turning to Satan. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, blameless, upright man, fears God, turns away from evil. Although you incited me, against him to destroy him. Who destroyed him? God did. God literally says, you incited me to destroy him. I am the one who destroyed him. Ultimately, removing the very things from his life that were blessings. Chapter 1, verse 22. Chapter 2, verse 10. We are told that Job did not sin and neither charge God with wrong. It is not evil or sinful to acknowledge that ultimately it is God who stands behind good and evil. Look at chapter one, verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. Lord has given, Lord has taken. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Verse 22, and all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. It is not wrong to recognize the absolute sovereignty of God in all of creation. Mystery, yes. There is mystery in this, and that's one thing. God's word never seems to to move into parts of that mystery. Like, how does that work? We are never told. Not one place in Scripture. How does that work? Chapter 2, verse 10. And he said to her, you speak, as one of the foolish women would speak, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Again, as if evil comes from God, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. It is not sinful or wrong to recognize the absolute sovereignty of God in all of creation. We need to know this. Otherwise, you begin to think, why is the evil and suffering in my life? How is God good? Is he good? Does he even know about this? yes he knows yes he ultimately is the one behind it which raises so many questions we see this truth also in the new testament acts chapter 22 and 23 and 24 peter is talking to the crowds about the crucifixion of jesus notice what he says Peter says, "This Jesus, delivered up to the definite, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's what we read, right? It's clearly what we read. Is this simply evil breaking out in the world, and God has no say so in it?" Is this outside of his sovereign rule? No, because we're clearly told according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Nothing happens in creation apart from the sovereign rule of God. Nothing happens. That means that the cross was not plan B. That means Job's life And the suffering that he experiences is not plan B or C or D. That means whatever trial you go through, whatever difficulty you experience is not plan B or C in your life. And God is just sitting there going, man, if only I can make this right. Whatever trial you are in, God is in control. He's not been caught off guard. And he will... Ordain what he hates to accomplish what he loves. There's no clearer picture of that than the cross of Jesus Christ, which we know because Ephesians tells us that he elected us in Christ before the foundation of the world, which means that the cross was the intent of creation all along. The problem is, is we often don't know how or why we suffer and that's what just puts us in a tailspin i think why is this happening how is this happening we don't we don't know what is going on i mean think about job he absolutely suffers in the dark he does not know about chapters 1 and 2 do you realize that like job starts in chapter 3 he doesn't know about this conversation He doesn't know that his faith is being proven as genuine. He doesn't know that his life is being used to testify of the glory of God. He doesn't know that for thousands of years after this text is written, it will be used to encourage people in their faith until Christ returns. He doesn't know any of this. He's completely and absolutely in the dark. But here's here's the really, really, really good news. We're not like Job. Not in that way because we're not in the dark. Now that doesn't mean we know exactly why the things are happening in your life or why, but we know, we know what God is doing because we have the book of Job. We have 66 books here that show us God's sovereignty and his rule and his goodness and his grace and how he uses all things for the good of those who love him, and he's using these things for the purpose of refining us, of transforming us more, that we'd be made in the image of his son. We we see all of that. And so while there are things we don't know, there are things that we, we do know about suffering, and about trials, and about the storms that come into our lives. And one of them, The next point is suffering reveals the genuineness of our faith and the glory of God. I want you to think think about the, the argument that Satan makes. He basically says, God, you are not glorious and worthy of all worship. Why? Why does he say that? His argument is that if God did not give good things by our love, then we would not love him. The book of Job, what's Job actually making us wrestle with? We want to go straight to our our sufferings and our trials. And we want to go straight to, well, how does this make sense of me? But what is Job actually wrestling with at this moment? The book of Job. We sang about it. We sang about it last week. We sang about it this week. And guess what? We'll sing about it next week, too. The book of Job is asking us, is God worthy of all worship? Or does he have to buy your love? Is he not, in and of himself, glorious and beautiful? Let me ask you, would you worship God if you were quadriplegic your entire life? Like Joni Erickson Tata? I think she's paraplegic, quadriplegic. Would you you worship God if you lived in a third world country with no clean water and barely enough food to live on? Would you worship God if your health was like Job's? Boils and maggots all over yourself? Would you praise him that he's good? Would you? That's what Job wrestles with. Like we just want to go straight to us because that's all that's really important. But Job is is really centering first and foremost on, is God worthy of all worship? And so how is it that he is going to be seen as glorious and Job's faith is going to be seen as genuine? Those are two sides of the same coin. God is glorious and our faith is genuine. The way that that is shown is through suffering. And that's hard Because we we want to think the world is about us. And yet Job is realigning us to go, the world is not about you. It's about God. You were made in his image. You were created by him, for him. He sustains you. The only reason you exist is because he says exist. The reason your heart continues to beat right now is he's making your heart beat right now. And trust me, he he actually knows your heart at this moment as well as every other heart. Remember, he's infinite in power and knowledge and sovereignty. So he literally can control all things at all times in every single being, in every cell, in every atom in this world. There's no limitations on him. We can barely do two things at once. And God is doing all things at once. Job is realigning ourselves to the glory and majesty of our God that we would know that he is worthy. And we see that in his worship. His worship does two things. One, it does show the genuineness of his faith. Just as a soldier's worth is tested in battle, a ship's strength is tested not in the harbor, but out in the open seas in the storm, a saint's faith is tested not merely in blessings, but in trials. So we see that Job's worship proves the genuineness of his faith, but at the same time, it also demonstrates that God is worthy of all glory and all honor and all praise. That's what happens here through the worship of Job. And I want you to realize that God does this for the good of Job too. Sometimes we miss this. Like this is what First Peter chapter one says. this is what First Peter 1, six and seven says, "In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials." So that's him really gently talking to people who are literally being persecuted. You might, you might have been grieved by various trials. We've all been grieved. We all know pain, we all know suffering, we all know trials. He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it tested by fire, may prove, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So suffering does reveal the genuineness of our faith, but it does more than that, too. It prepares us for the glory of God. Like, you can't read, like, there's certain people, and they will say this, you should read Job 1 and 2 in isolation. Just figure out Job 1 and 2. Don't think about chapter 42, where Job is then rewarded, and his life, he's given back everything that he had before. But we don't read the Bible that way. We do know the end of the story. We read everything through now the lens of the cross. We do read backwards. And when we come into the book of Job, we read he loses everything. And we're going to spend the next few weeks going from verses 3 to chapter 41, where we look at this way that he wrestles then with everything. But then we get to chapter 42, and everything is given back to Job. He has a family again. Now, yes, New family doesn't necessarily replace old family. But you got to realize it's a picture of glory that's taking place. Everything had been stripped from Job. The genuineness of his faith had been seen. He's now refined and prepared for glory. Job is ultimately preparing us for the glory of God that happens when Jesus returns. That you rewards and God's grace and honor and glory will be lavished upon you for all of eternity. Which means what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, that our light momentary afflictions are preparing us for what? An eternal weight of glory. God does this for his good. And I know we want to wrestle, but what about his children? And what about all these things? There is difficulties in that. None of us would mind if we suffered for a day if it meant for the rest of your life you would have absolute joy and blessings, right? We could all go through a day. If after that, there'd be nothing else. But if God's word is true, and we're gonna spend eternity, millions and millions and billions and trillions of years with God, then that means our lifetime isn't even a day. It isn't even a minute. It's but a moment in the grand scheme of all times. And, and would it be fair for God to say, I will bring suffering and trials in your life for this momentary moment. So you will have this infinite glory for the rest of the millions and trillions and billions of years that you'll spend with me. And we'd all say, yeah, yeah, that's that's no problem. The problem is we're in that moment right now though, right? We're in that day. And sometimes we get so focused in on the day that this is all we can imagine. So we must come back to Scripture. Like in Philippians 4, Paul says, I know how to be brought low and how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. God brings trials and sufferings in our life, and he doesn't then say, good luck. I hope you make it through. What we learn there, Paul, as he's in these trials, as he's in these pains, as he's in these sufferings, he says, I know how to get through them now. God gives strength. And what we're gonna see is, all throughout the book of Job is, ultimately God does give him strength, and God in the end of the book will be meeting him and answering him and giving him grace and helping him to understand what has been happening, at least to a degree. Listen, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you need to know that every trial that comes your way is not meant to destroy you. But it's refining you and preparing you for infinite glory with God. Infinite glory, and you are being used to display the very glory and worth of God. If you're an unbeliever, then I would say the trials in your life have one of two purposes. Number one, they're either a shadow of a much greater judgment that you will experience if you refuse to believe in Christ. And you need to know that. Like, if you're going, man, this is terrible. That's a shadow, a glimpse of something much, much, much worse, the eternal wrath and judgment of God. Or your trial is the gracious means of God that God is using to awaken you out of your spiritual slumber so you would believe in him. So if you're an unbeliever and the trial is coming, you you decide, are you going to let this continue to harden your heart and say, well, there obviously is no God which thus means it's just a shadow of awaiting a far greater judgment, or will you realize that there are spiritual realities in this world and God is using the very trial in your life to awaken you The life's not simply about you and you're not nearly as in control as you think that you are. And would you believe that there is a God who is good enough and gracious enough to disrupt your life so that you would know you are not God. And that you would believe in him and trust in him and experience his grace and forgiveness and have everlasting life with him. And ultimately, that's what Job does. Job points us to Jesus. Job just gently points us to Jesus the entire time. there's so many ways we can look at this. Like, we'll look at it next week. But the fact that he goes and sits on the ashes, that's the unclean place outside the city. Where does Jesus take the cross according to Hebrews 13? outside the city to the unclean place. Job just points us to Christ the entire time. One theologian said this, when people read the book of Job and want to accuse God of sitting in his heaven and playing cruel games with his people, they would do well to look back and forth between Job and Jesus. This is not some Greek or Babylonian God living in the sky and playing games with poor humans. This is the God who became a man and suffered in our place. The God who baits Satan is preparing his people to understand not only Job's suffering, but also his own. When he comes to save his people and then their own as they are called to follow him and spread the good news of what he will do. So Job, is, Job is a book that makes us confront God and wrestle with suffering. And What we see as suffering is a peculiar means. It is strange to us It's a very normal instrument that God uses that reveals the genuineness of our faith and supremacy of God. And while we've talked about God's sovereignty a lot today, I know, I think what D.A. Carson said is very true. While God's sovereignty raises problems, it's also what promises hope. I just want you to think about that. We can kind of press back and say, well, is God really sovereign over all these things? And But it's because he's sovereign we also have absolute hope in whatever suffering and whatever trial we are in. So I encourage you, as we look at the book of Job and as we continue to wrestle through it, let let us behold the God of the Bible and see that our God is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. He's created you. He's made you in his image that you would know him, that you would love him, and you would enjoy him. And he does bring sufferings trials in our life, that we would not be distracted by the things of this world, but that we would find joy and satisfaction in God alone, because we will be with Him for all of eternity, experiencing His infinite glory and infinite worth. So let me pray. Um, Let me pray. Father, Father, Job is heavy. There's just a lot today. And I know that there are We're probably wrestling with things and truths, and it's easy to have a heavy heart as we walk through these type of truths. And yet, God, these truths are so good. And God, they cause the roots of our faith to to go deeper and deeper into the soil of your character and of your truth. And I pray that today, while it's sobering, Knowing that life's not about us, knowing that you will use trials in our life, and that sometimes it seems like we have no say so in them. And yet, you are doing things well beyond what we can understand. Your purposes are glorious, and you prepare us for a weight of glory that we would spend all of eternity with you, enjoying you. So, God, may we truly believe the truth of your scripture. That we are created for eternity, which means our life, our 70, 80 years, whatever it is, is but a, a vapor. May we know that, God. May we not be so fixated on this life that we forget the grandeur and the glory of the life to come. But may we live this life in expectation of everlasting life with you. Lord, I do pray for anyone who's going through trials at this moment. Lord, I pray that your word would comfort them. I pray that they would rest in the mystery of knowing that you are absolutely sovereign. And we have no idea how some of these things work out for good. We may not ever know until eternity, but we can rest in your truthfulness and your goodness that as you rule and run this world and ordain all the things that come in and out of our lives, it is for our good and your glory. In your name, Jesus, amen.